Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This Thanksgiving's going to be different. You're going to look around your table and family members that are normally with you are going to be absent. But here's the thing. Even though their bodies aren't going to be in the chairs, what sticks around in families? The criticism, the sarcasm, the worry, the anger, even when the people don't. How does your family's emotional legacy of sadness, worry, and anger, how do those things impact you as a parent, as a partner, and how will you parent your kids differently? We'll answer that question in this week's episode of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, the show for real talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. Hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. I've been a therapist for 30 years. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'll help you find your way. This was actually our 10th episode on the legacy of emotional patterns, but this episode, it's so dense, I really feel like people could listen to it once a year and really have some aha moments. It's very meaty, this one. It's the turducken of episodes. (laughs) So hi, everybody. Hi, Robin. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? doing well. Excited to talk about this next subject. I feel like everyone is impacted by this because we're talking about family culture and we're talking about the legacy of family culture. And really, here's the question that as you as a parent are thinking about how you manage your kids, how did you grow up? What was it like with your parents And what did you learn about handling different emotions and expressing different emotions, tolerating emotions in other people? This is a big topic that I see as so important to what we want to teach our kids. Yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of moments you have with your families that are your clients of these aha moments for the parents. We had to start somewhere. So the Mm -hmm. context of how we're parenting is often framed with how we were raised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I do when I'm meeting a family, and particularly if it's a family that really is dealing with anxiety, and I'll say to the kids, well, which one of your parents do you think is the worrier? Or are both of them warriors? And the kids virtually never do they say, oh gosh, that's a really tough question, Lynn. They immediately know which parent that I'm talking about. And then I ask the parents and I ask the kids, I say, so what about, what about the grandparents? Who do you think taught your mom how to be a warrior? Or who do you think showed that in your parents' family? We laugh a lot because they're like, oh my gosh, if you knew my grandma, right? Or my my pop-up is such a worrier. They're really aware of it when we talk about it. And then it opens up this whole conversation about how these patterns 
are passed down and what becomes the language of the family in terms of their emotions and the way they manage problems and crises and relationships. It's always a part of a family's interactions. There's no way around it. This sounds like a very good reality TV show, like the postscript to the newlywed game. After they marry, then having at one point, (laughs) having the grandkids come back and talk about their parents and grandparents. So when you think about the emotional culture of a family, what are you talking about specifically? It's not really about our identity and our heritage. It's it's more like from a psychotherapist viewpoint, what do you mean? So what I mean is what does a family do when big emotions show up? And big emotions are very often normal emotions. So how does a family respond during a period of grief? How does a family respond when somebody is just feeling sad? What does a family do to manage a uncertain situation. So let, let's just think of, you know, what what does one family do? They they get on a plane and you're, you know, you're a traveler. So we talk about this because traveling requires flexibility. What does one family do when they get on a plane and the pilot comes on and says, oh gosh, you know what? We're, we've just been fogged in. We have to go back to the terminal and we're not going to be able to leave tonight. How does a family manage those emotions? And what did you see your parents doing? How did you see your parents navigate through the tricky parts of life so that when somebody was angry or disappointed or anxious or when there was a death or when there was sadness, how did that family talk about it? How did you support each other? And sometimes more impactfully, how did you deny it? How did you close it down? How did you shut it down? There's nothing to see here. We aren't going to have that discussion. We're not going to tolerate that. There's just a lot there that when you think about the way that you are interacting with your children, what are you doing with their emotional lives and their responses? A lot of it probably comes from what you were taught as a child. Sometimes you will embrace what you're taught. And then other times, interestingly, people will go the opposite direction and very much reject what they were taught. Being able to recognize that and look back on that and understand where those patterns come from is really helpful in your own parenting because it comes up very quickly. It's very reflexive for a lot of people. And they go through that with their children without even having a lot of self-awareness about it. So it's good to sort of bring it up to the surface and examine it a little bit. It's almost like when you have a family and both of the parents are in your session, you could go over what is your emotional dowry you bring Mm -hmm. to the family. So for example, one family may have a strength where one family had no issues with expressing anger, but the partner's family supplanted anger and no one expressed anger. Mm -hmm. That comes up a a lot of times like one family was okay talking about sex and the other couple and the other member of the couple said, oh, my family never talked about sex. You know, so it's it's about assessing like the backgrounds and saying, my family did this and I do feel this was really one of the better things I'm bringing. 
but my family also did this and this is a pattern I want to be aware of and and not repeat. And you know, really good marriage therapists, that's what they do when they're talking to couples and they're trying to help them work through what's going on between them. There's a lot of taking stock of where you learned patterns and what feels normal to you and how it feels so different to your partner. I remember talking to one family and I think it was the mom was saying that in her family, if there was an issue, if somebody was upset about something, they would have a big blow up and they would talk about it, but then everybody would sort of be like, okay, and they would resolve it in a healthy way. And her partner's family, it was just generations of quiet, seething resentment. So you can imagine if you're in a relationship with somebody like that, that when she was upset about something, she really wanted to get it out in the open and talk about it. And her partner had no idea how that looked or how it would end. He would just shut down. And his whole idea was, if we don't talk about it, then we don't have to deal with it. Now imagine if you've got kids and you're trying to parent together and you have these two very disparate ways of dealing with conflict, not talking about that and not recognizing that becomes a problem. And what feels really good about it, and I know this from my own marriage, which is going to be 30 years in in a month, is that when you are talking to your partner and they say to you, you know what? I get what I'm why I'm doing this because this is what I learned in my family. That feels so different than the ultimate like if you want to throw gasoline on a marital conflict when you say you're being just like your mother or you sound just like your father right? That is a disaster. But when you yourself say, you know what? I recognize I'm doing this because this is what I learned in my family. Oh my gosh, it's like melting butter. Is it as bad if you say, I recognize why you're doing this because you've seen a repeated pattern of your mother or father doing it for you? (laughs) Is that the same gasoline? (laughs) Well, um, that's that's a little bit more sophisticated gasoline but unfortunately can have the same outcome. But I think that one of the things that we can show our kids and and that we can talk about in our families is how are these patterns passed down? And then when you acknowledge them, I think that's one of the interesting things is that we don't have to be so defensive and have such strong ownership of these patterns, right? That they're yours and you're, you know, how dare you insult my family? It's kind of interesting. This is what happened in my family, and this is how I recognize it's impacting me. And you start talking about it, and then you talk to your kids about it. It really is kind of interesting. It becomes sort of this curious exploration. It's sort of like the 23andMe of emotional investigation, where you begin to see these patterns. It's kind of cool, and it doesn't have to be something that becomes so conflicted and so angry. It's just an exploration. It is pretty interesting. You as a family therapist who's had access to talking to hundreds and hundreds of families over the years, so I think there are some ground rules for how to think about your own family, because no family is perfect. Well, I think the three sort of the three big ones that we can look at in terms of how does a family manage, I think are anger, anxiety, and then sadness and loss and grief. Say, so so let me give you an example of a family in, in each of those categories, maybe that is sort of an extreme, but then we'll go back to a baseline. So there are some families where death and loss and grief 
are very much a part of what they talk about, very much a part that life and death and birth and all of that, those cycles of life are very much a part of what they experience. I have a a friend who is my age and she's Irish and they still, she remembers as a, as a child, they still had in home wakes for people when they had passed away and the kids were involved in it. So there was a lot of talk and there was a lot of mourning and there was a lot of grieving and there was a lot of celebrating and laughing and crying. And so that whole sadness and grief and loss was very much a part of her family's culture. That's a healthy way to look at it. Now, sure that in those Irish families, there were other things going on, um, but in terms of their ability to, to grieve. Now, let's look at, let's see, who can we think of in sort of popular a popular historical culture. Well, I can think of a few examples, actually. So if you've, if you've watched the Jane Fonda documentary, which- That was so good. You can put the link up from that. But Jane Fonda's mother committed suicide. And after she died, no one ever spoke of her again. Her father never mentioned her. I don't think she went to the funeral. There was absolutely, her mother literally disappeared from her young life. There was no talk about it. There was no mention of it. So that's the other extreme. And I know I've talked to several families where that was the case, where a parent died and or a sibling died, and it was just done and over with. I remember looking back, and, and some of you are going to be too younger, young to remember this, but Jacqueline Kennedy lost a baby. There was no discussion of that. During the time when she was newly coming into the spotlight and that she was, I think, that he was running for president. I can't remember the exact timing of it. But she had a horrible loss. There was not a discussion of it. There was not room for grief or mourning or talking about that. So that would be an example in terms of loss and grief and sadness of how differently families can manage that. There are some families that don't want to have pets because the parents are so worried that the children won't be able to handle the death of a pet and not be able to work through that. So instead of having that experience, they say, no, we're not going to allow our children to experience death and loss and sadness in general. I recall we, we've talked about that where a parent is not wanting their child to experience the pain of loss of losing mm-hmm. a pet. So that's that's an anxious parent wanting to eliminate their child's discomfort. Mm-hmm. You're from a family where they just want to push away grief and mm-hmm. not acknowledge it and not discuss it, or even thinking of how we as a culture didn't discuss miscarriage, loss, and other things before. It's just, it's shying away from the vulnerability of sadness. Yes. Perceiving that sadness is weakness. Yeah. And I think vulnerability is a, is a really important word as you talk about that, that sadness is weakness. And I think that sadness is scary. If you grew up in a family where you never saw your parents cry, And so then if they did cry, that meant that something was terribly wrong. Or if you grew up in a family, perhaps where someone was really experiencing sadness or grief or despair in a very 
deep way. And so you saw that parent crying a lot and grieving a lot. And that's scary for you too. And I think what we're really talking about today is that how do you, how can you talk about that and understand that and just sort of revisit that a little bit so that your own children, you can figure out what's going to be the healthy way for you to talk about and experience and show these emotions to your children. So on both ends of the spectrum, if you've got a a parent that says, you know, crying is for sissies or we're not going to show sadness or, or the other extreme where you've got a parent who is in great sadness and is crying all the time and you can't feel as if they're there for you emotionally. Both of those extremes are something that you want to pay attention to as you're parenting your own child. And how would you talk about that differently? How would you talk about sadness and grief and loss with your children in a way that might be different than the way that it was talked about or not talked about in your family? That's what you really want to pay attention to. I am really working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, and I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order. You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclucks. Thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. And the same goes for anger. 
So say you came from a family where there was explosive anger, maybe even abuse and violence. Maybe there was, you know, real volatility that made you feel very frightened as a child. Or maybe you came from a family where you knew that there was anger, but it was never talked about. And so maybe it was passive aggressive. Maybe you were in between two parents that were very angry at each other, but never worked on their conflict, but went between, you know, used you as a conduit for their anger. Then if that's the family history that you have with anger, how are you going to talk to your kids and teach your children and demonstrate to your children that anger is a normal and expectable reaction? And how do we demonstrate that to kids And how do we teach them the way to express their anger and the appropriate way to let people know when they're feeling anger such that it isn't at one of those extremes? When you talk about that, and I think about my own family and the legacy around specific emotions, it's very interesting that I think of how I reacted to my mom, whose behavior also was a reaction of her mom's, my grandmother's. And and both of them had two opposite approaches to sadness, for example. Mm -hmm. So then I think of my own reaction to sadness as a mom and why you know, I guess the, the the correct answer, if there's a correct answer, mm-hmm. is that vanilla ice cream goal of mm-hmm. can I sit with my own child's sadness while remaining in vanilla ice cream so that I'm centering their emotional experience, I'm validating their emotional experience, and I'm not bringing the baggage of my mother's and grandmother's and the legacy of react to mm-hmm. their emotion, right? Isn't Is that what our goal is. Yeah. And the other goal too, is that being able to allow your children to see your expression of sadness or anger or worry in a way that doesn't frighten them. So say in in that situation that your child is sitting with you and you are feeling incredibly sad about something, how can you express that in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming to them, in a way that doesn't make them feel like they need to to do something to rescue you or get away from you. So there's two things going on. There's you being able to sit with your child's emotion in a way that lets them know that it's okay for them to express it. And you're going to sit there and be vanilla ice cream. You're going to be that holding space for them. And then also, how are you going to express your own emotion so that it doesn't overwhelm them? Because when we think about parental expression of emotion. And if you think about your own childhood, if you had a parent that expressed their emotion in a way that felt out of control for you, then it is very likely that you're not going to be comfortable with your own expression of that emotion. So it's being able to show the emotion in a way that is manageable and also a way to hold the emotion in a way that's manageable. One of the quick things that happens, you know, with sadness and and with anger and with anxiety, although anxiety we'll talk about in a moment because that's a little bit different, is that we express it in a way that makes a child feel scared. And say you experienced a loss, how do you express your sadness in front of your child so that they know it's okay to have those strong feelings, that it's okay to grieve, that it's okay to be disappointed, that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to have it come and go. Those are all the things that we want to help our kids understand. 
So when those emotions come up, that they have a model that they're going to feel it and they're going to get through it. Because that's the thing that's scary for kids is when will this end? How will we get through this? Well, obviously, you know this. So, you know, I lost my mom when my daughter mm-hmm. was five. Mm-hmm. So I did have to grieve in front of a young child mm-hmm. while while pregnant with my second child. So that was a really fun time. Mm. I always knew to be open with my sadness because mm-hmm. you can't hide it. Mm-hmm. And also when you supplant it for too long, it just doesn't work either. But that's an interesting thing you said of, you know, you have to express grief and loss in a way that is authentic, but the boundary is that you don't want your kids to feel like they need to rescue you. Yeah. Which obviously sounds really important, but what is the balance of letting them be empowered that you are sad, do you just intervene and tell them, no, you don't need to go down a rescuing path. I don't need your rescuing. I just need the space to feel sad about losing grandma or losing grandpa. Yeah. And so you'd be very direct about it. Like you can, you can say, I'm feeling really sad right now. So say they see you crying or they say you grieving and they say, mommy, are you sad? And you say, I'm really, I'm feeling very sad right now because I'm thinking about grandma or I'm thinking about grandpa. And what I would, what I can have from you right now is if you came over here and gave me a big hug, that would make me feel better. And then I can, I can handle this sadness and you can go off and be you. You show them how can they be empathic to you and then you give them the message that this is okay. You can be empathic to me. You can give me a hug. Oh, that is so loving and helpful. And now you can go off and still be you. And I think that all of the stuff that goes unspoken is the stuff that is so hard for kids to figure out. Say you were grieving and you were crying about the loss of your mom and your daughter said, mommy, what's the matter? And you said, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm fine. Right. Or you said, you know, I'm not going to be able to handle this. I'll never get over this. Either one of those things, they don't know what to do with that. So you tell them, you say, come here and give me a hug. And maybe let's share a happy memory that we have with grandma because that'll make us both feel better. And so you walk them through the process of being able to express it and then being able for, for them to move on and continue to be five or continue to be 15 or continue to be seven, however old they are. And it's the same with anger. You have an angry moment and they say, what's the matter? And you say, oh, I'm sorry. I just got really angry about this and I am going to take a little break. I'm going to take a few deep breaths or I'm going to go and take a walk and I'm going to work through this. Thank you for checking in on me. I got this. It's all of the denial of it. So think about the two unhealthy extremes are the denial of it, the this isn't happening, or the I'm going to overwhelm you with my feelings. There's a big sweet spot in the middle and there's a lot of room. It's not this little tiny sweet spot. It's a big sweet spot in the middle where you can express it, you can articulate it, right? There's that emotional literacy. You give them the words, you ask for something from them so they know how to help but it's something small and age appropriate, of course. And then you give them permission to move forward and you show them that you're capable of doing that too. So, you know, we know that when parents are really, really anxious, when parents are really, really depressed, that children step into a role where they're trying to fix it, they're trying to feel safe, they're trying to feel okay, And it becomes pretty detrimental over time because that child hasn't been given the room to develop their own self and their own experience and their own feelings. Well, getting back to grief, because grief is a slightly separate 
uh, situation than having a depressed parent because grief is situational and can happen. But I think that's an interesting thing. When I think back to those very challenging times right after my mom's death, I think that that's true. I think that if the way to look at it is if you feel like you can't hit it in this very big sweet spot of talking about your sadness, that's absolutely the time that you figure out a way to get in your car by yourself and just Mm -hmm. let out grief tears. That's right. But that's also the exact way probably for people who are handling powerful anger as well, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's just that limit of like, this is how I can express my emotions with my kids Mm -hmm. uh, in this sweet spot. Otherwise, I am going to take this private. That's right. And then the big question also is if that's about emotional management, which is what we talked about before in that flattening our emotional curve episode, Mm -hmm. is our goal to always be able to process our emotions within the sweet spot? Or is the goal to know when we can and know when we can't? I think that's absolutely the goal is to know when you can and know when you can't, right? So you don't have to do it immediately. And I think you saying, you know, you saying I'm sometimes I have to get in my car and go for a drive and let out those angry tears or those those that that grieving cry that I need to have. That's absolutely appropriate. The idea that you have to do everything correctly in the moment as a parent, that's unattainable. And so remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so you can have moments in which you're out of your sweet spot and maybe your kids even witness them. But then what you teach them when you come back to it is you you give them a little bit of insight into, into what the process was that you were going through. You show them the ending. Mom, can I have more time? This is what you'll hear when you use a circle to manage your kid's screen time. What do you think of the circle? I hate it. Why do you hate it? Well, I don't actually hate it, but I feel like it's good that I'm not spending as much time on the internet. It lets you set daily limits for different apps and social media. It also controls your kids' Wi-Fi schedules, and you can adjust age-appropriate filters for searches from little kids to teens. Our affiliate link will get you $20 off a circle. I love it. But it's still annoying in the moment. I'm sure it is. You know, it's really interesting. They did this research a while ago where they were asking kids, probably grown-ups now, but about their parents fighting. And they found that in families where children witness their parents having conflict, normal married conflict, not abusive, out-of-control conflict, but normal parent conflict. And when those kids saw their parents reconcile, saw their parents be okay, saw their parents work through it, those kids did much better in their own ability later on to manage conflict and work through things. So it's not like we want to take it behind closed doors and not let kids see us work through the process. Oh, that's so interesting because I think I I sort of had this impression that the parents need to have a unified front and you sort of work out your conflict not in front of them. Mm-hmm. I guess you never know like, oh, this will be an easy thing for us to talk about in front <laughs> yeah, of our right. kids. And then all of a sudden <laughs> there's some gasoline. You know, uh-huh. I guess you don't always know. How do you manage that and think about what conflict is good to navigate in front of the children? If, if you have differing opinions about things, 
then there's the undermining of the other parent. So we want to make sure we don't do that, right? So one parent says, sure, it's fine if you ride your bike to the friend's house. And then the other parent comes in and says, your mother has the worst judgment. We're not going to listen, right? So that's undermining. And certainly there are certain issues and certain adult issues that you're not going to argue with in front of your child. But I think the bigger picture is, the sort of the overall thing is, is that when parents are angry at each other and kids see them being frustrated or being angry, And then they see the parents, maybe they don't hear what the parent's saying, but it's basically, so let me give you an example. So say a parent, some parents are having an argument. Let's say they're having an argument about whether or not uh, the wife's brother is going to stay and and stay with them over Thanksgiving because he's a real pain in the ass and it always causes conflict. So they're going to have this discussion. So they start talking about it. It gets a little heated, as you can imagine. And then the parents say in front of the kids, you know what? We have a really hard time figuring out what to do with Uncle Jeremy. We're going to go and talk about this for a little bit. We're going to figure this out. So then you can go away and you can have the discussion so that your kids aren't a part of it. And then you come back and then they see that that there was a reconciliation or they see that there was some sort of agreement. So they don't have to be a part of the minutia of it. But I think the other extreme is when, when people say to me, I never saw my parents fight. I never saw them angry at each other. Now, I'm sure there are some couples where they say, we never had a cross word. You hear that every once in a while. And I think, okay. But, but it's really about letting your kids see that you can get angry at each other. Maybe you do go away and you talk about it. Maybe you have a timeout from each other and then they see that there's some resolution. So that's a really important thing for for kids to see. If it's a smaller issue and they're having, you know, you're having a political discussion about something or you're disagreeing about how long it should cook the chicken or whatever, and they can see you working through that. They don't have to see the minutia of the discussion. They don't have to hear all the words, but they have to see that you, it's okay for them to see that you were angry at each other. And then it's okay for them to see you going through a process of reconciliation or figuring it out. And then a process of compromise. And a lot of families, you know, families will say, you know, we never saw any of that. Or they see a big, huge, angry blow up. And then parents give each other the silent treatment for three days. That's lousy. Yeah, that would be pretty painful. I worked with a family once and the parents didn't speak to each other for two months. And they were in the house with the kids and the kids were old enough to know what was going on. And even if you were little and you didn't really know what was going on, you knew what was going on. It's not about emotional reactivity and vomiting on your kids so that they can see all that's going on and the intensity of it. But it's about recognizing that emotions are real. They come up. People have conflict. People have sadness. People have grief. People have worry. And how is it that you are showing your kids how to discuss it in a way that does make you vulnerable, in a way that does allow you to work through it. So if we think about the patterns, as you're thinking about this, think about the patterns in your family. Let me give you a few that are worth paying attention to, right? So if you had a pattern in your family that was very passive aggressive, so that when somebody was angry at each other, they never talked about it or they didn't put it into words, but everybody knew that they were angry, but it was never spoken about or that they did things in order to irritate the other person because they were angry. The blaming pattern. So when something goes wrong, when you're feeling angry or frustrated, you immediately blame somebody else, a lack of being able to take ownership for what's going on with you. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. 
And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail, but lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make Make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. With sadness, the whole idea that you can't feel sadness. I have talked to many adults who have told me that growing up, they were not allowed to be sad because it made their parents feel badly and the parents were really depending upon them to be happy and to be okay. So that's another pattern that you want to pay attention to. Similarly, I grew up in a household like that, where I always tease that accentuate the positive was like our Mm -hmm. family mantra that Mm -hmm. old uh, Andrew's sisters, it was your sadness isn't valid. It must be your time of the month, or Mm. maybe it's a full moon. You know, as an adult now, when I think about I was very annoyed when if if I was sad, and I wanted to cry to my mom about something, and she would say, maybe you have PMS, as opposed to validating Mm -hmm. why I was sad. She just simply couldn't handle her own sadness. And she was doing the best she could. 
Right. And I think that's such a good example, because if we're talking about sadness, or even if we're talking about worry, right? So if we talk about worry, and you've got a a family where you're not allowed to be worried or unsure or uncertain about anything, because what you're talking about, Robin, is sort of the denial of it. So I say, oh, I'm really anxious about this. And somebody immediately comes in with the best of intentions and say, oh, well, there's no reason to worry about that. Well, why are you worried about that? Right? Oh, nothing's going to go wrong. What's the worst that could happen? Worst thing to say to an anxious child. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The worst thing to say. Or say, you know, you and I were both teenage girls, right? And so we say, you know, oh, I'm worried that somebody's going to make fun of me or I'm worried that I'm not going to fit in. Or how about, you know, like I'm not pretty. And then somebody says, oh, you're the most beautiful girl in the world, right? It doesn't give you any room to have that discussion, to say to that child, well, that is a hard way to feel. Let's talk about that. Or I wonder how that came about. Or if you're feeling sad, oh, that's that's really disappointing that that happened to you. Or I can totally understand that. That's really tough. So there's that empathy again, the denial of it or the minimization of it, or it must be something else, you know, outside of yourself. It's a full moon or you're PMSing or whatever, right? Or it's because you're a Gemini or, you know, that happens, right? Oh, well, it must be because, right? So all of that is comes with the best intentions. You think about it, they're just trying to make you feel better. But the result of it is, is that it doesn't give you an opportunity to really talk about what you're feeling and make some space for it. And then, of course, most importantly, be able to figure out how can I feel this and move through it. That's the really important skill that we want kids to develop and to have. I think that the fact that I wasn't really allowed to feel sadness has had played certain things out. I can think of other households where people weren't allowed to express anger. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, those feelings still find their outlets. They do. And they're not the best ones. Right. That's why I loved really dark, sad music as Mm -hmm. a teen, right? I loved the Smiths and the Cure and the whole experience because I loved listening to other people express their sadness. I think of families where I know the children did not express anger back to the parents. And that also comes back to bite as well. When you hear somebody say, well, I would have never talked to my parent that way, right? And that's, you know, they're usually saying that because somebody was disrespectful or or this or that. How do you now, if you're if you're thinking about this as a parent and you're listening to this, how do you teach your child to express disappointment, frustration, anger in a way that is respectful? Say you do something that lets your kid down. Maybe you cross a boundary, you embarrass them, you make an arrangement for them, you you do something that they don't like. How do they let you know that in a way that's still respectful? so that you're not shutting that down. So, and again, it it is not a little tiny sweet spot of perfection here. There is a lot of room for this because when we screw up and when we do things or when we react in a certain way, coming back and doing that post-game analysis and saying to your child, I am so sorry, I got so angry when I was in that store and the way I spoke to that clerk, I am gonna take full responsibility for that. I should have said, or what would you have said, or what would have been a better way for us to 
let them know that we are unhappy. There's all sorts of opportunity to talk through things with your kids. So you don't have to always do it perfectly the first time. I, I want that to be so clear to everybody. So if you lose it, that's not the worst possible thing that could happen as a parent. You just do the post-game analysis so that you can show your kids how you are thinking about your reactions and how you are taking responsibility for them. I think you told me something since you're my sister-in-law for when I had little kids, you had some really sage parenting advice. When your kids are talking to you and it might not be the biggest thing, you're still establishing that pattern of listening Mm-hmm. So that that so that you're listening to them and hearing them and that they continue to share with you the things as they become increasingly important. Yeah, because it's about eventually they'd start communicating their feelings to you when they're very young. Mm-hmm. And that is your opportunity to start figuring out how you want to respond to that. Right. right. Channeling your own Mr. Rogers and having that model of validation and listening. Right. And so say they're talking to you because they can't find that Lego piece that went under the couch and they're talking about it and you say, it's okay if you can't find that Lego piece or you're not really listening or it's just a Lego piece. Well, when you're three or when you're four, that Lego piece is huge. You want to establish a pattern so that then when there's something they're really you know concerned about, like, mom, I just graduated from college and I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life right? That's the 21-year-old's Lego piece under the couch. And so you're establishing that pattern of if it's important to you, I'm listening and I'm validating versus saying, oh, that's nothing because I know because I'm an adult that that Lego pieces, you'll forget about this tomorrow. So you're opening the door for communication about the little things because the little things to them are big things and the big things are going to be big things. It's again, it's process, not content. We're going to screw up because we're parents and there's no way to not screw up. If we can go in leading with validation, everything, that's probably the most important thing we can do. It doesn't require brilliance to say, that sounds very frustrating. And that must be really hard. And if we can only say that, that is really the best we could do. So that validation and that empathy is the opposite of the minimization and the denial. Well, that's not a big deal. Well, you shouldn't be feeling that way, right? That's the shutting down. So again, if we think back, and if you think back to your family's emotional legacy, who was the validating person for you? Who was the one that said, oh my gosh, your poor broken heart? Who was the one that said, let me help you wipe away your tears and give you a big hug? But for a lot of kids, they talk about the grandparent that had that role. Who in your life said to you, I hear you. Who was that person and how important that was for you versus perhaps who in your life was the one that said you shouldn't be feeling that way or we're not going to feel that way or I'm not going to allow you to have that emotion. We aren't comfortable with that. So just think of that a little bit in your life of who that person was for you. It may have been a teacher, actually. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a nice next door neighbor that you hung out with. Who knows who it was? But was there some adult in your life that heard you and that validated your emotional life in a way that made it feel okay to have those feelings and didn't shut them down and didn't minimize them? coming back to our families and our partners and our kids, it's, I think it's just a cool idea for two parents to say, 
these are things, these are the emotions that are really hard for us. Mm-hmm. Let's support each other and make sure that we're really able to find a space for them in how we're parenting. What you're saying is a nice sort of point to put on this is that it's about recognizing what are the emotions that are difficult for you? What was hard for you in your family? What did you learn or what you didn't learn? And then how can you consciously work on interrupting the patterns, interrupting the legacies, so that your kids are better equipped to express themselves to the people that they love, be it their friends, their partners, their children, when they're your grandchildren. That is just such a wonderful gift. And it's not about over-talking. It's not about psychobabble. It's not about being mushy and all that kind of stuff that sometimes people go, oh God, this is what therapists talk about. I'm talking about concretely saying, this is how we handle anger. This is how we talk about sadness. How can I make room for it? How can I teach you that it's okay for you to feel these things? Everyone should watch your Mr. Rogers video on your website. I'll put a link in the show notes. I love Mr. Rogers. Who doesn't? There is not one perfect way to parent. There is a great, big, huge, sweet spot that starts with validation and love and connection. And so it's been great spending time with you, Robin. Always, always fascinating and thought-provoking. So thank you, Lynn. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Flusterclux. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.